We're going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah this morning again. Uh, You might question our math. We spent four weeks in Jonah and we're going to spend one week in Jeremiah. But we're going to do that in order to show uh, there's all kinds of ways to approach the Old Testament. You can get very detail-y as we did in in Jonah who had prophesied a couple hundred years before Jeremiah. Or you can uh, do an overview of this 52 chapter book and extract from that book the person of Jeremiah and what his life was about. He is an unlikely hero, a character in our Old Testament character study, because he uh, is the bearer of bad news. We've had to absorb bad news this morning. Jeremiah uh, lived an entire life of having to give bad news and how to deal with that reality. Uh, Let's set the stage a bit about when Jeremiah prophesied, when he lived. I apologize for the lack of clarity of the slide. That's my fault. But I mainly just want us to focus here these two main dividing areas. Uh, Off to the left here is when the reign of the kings began, Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then the kingdom split under Solomon and 10 tribes, also known as Israel, went to the north. And we saw prophets like Obadiah and Joel and Jonah prophesy about their behavior. And we saw that the northern kingdom was eventually taken into exile by the Assyrians and taken back. And that occurred in a very important date in Old Old Testament history, 722 BC. We're now going to kind of change the lens of God's camera and focus now on the southern kingdom for a remaining period of time before the southern exile in the hands of the Babylonians. So prophets such as Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Nahum will prophesy now to the southern kingdom and how will they behave in light of the fact that they've seen their northern brethren going into exile. So Jeremiah was a prophet just like everybody else. And sometimes we look at these prophets and we see major prophets and minor prophets and try to figure out, well, what are these guys all about? Actually, their ministry was very straightforward. What they were called to do was simple. There's a a chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter in particular, in which they would spend a lot of their time and come upon these places, prophesy before these kings and bring about and comment upon the stipulations that were found in that chapter. It's a very simple chapter. It's known as the Bless Curse chapter or the Bless Discipline chapter. For the roughly the first half of the chapter deals with the blessings that will occur from obedience. And the latter part of the chapter deal with the discipline that will occur from disobedience. So all a prophet would do would come on the scene and remind people and, and, and that nation and say, if you obey God... God of the Mosaic Covenant will bless you. And that blessing took the form of all forms of children and crops and herds, peace, lots of food, prosperity. And if you would continue in that obedience to the Lord, you will expect those. Conversely, they might come on the scene and realize, well, we're not doing that well in war. Our crops are poor. And, And the prophet would come on and say, return to the Lord. Because he also recognized that disobedience brought forth discipline. And very much like a doctor, the prophet would come on the scene and look at symptoms, look at symptoms in the community. They would see the the lack of good crops, the lack of children, uh, the war and and the marauders coming in and their, their prophecy would be, go to the temple, go to church, return to the Lord. And as you might imagine, at times that wasn't received all that well in Jeremiah in particular. As the latter part of the disobedience genre goes on in chapter 28, He gets very specific, and the only reason I bring this up is because it will come to roost in Jeremiah's time in the book of Jeremiah. 
He warns the nation that continues in their disobedience that so severe will their discipline be that it will include ultimately cannibalism and exile, the ultimate horror that any of us might want to imagine. God prophesies in the book of Deuteronomy, and it comes to roost in Jeremiah's time. He will be an eyewitness to these things. And so that's the simple way in which a prophet worked. Uh, Jeremiah the person, let's get to know him just a bit. It's a combo name, Yirmeh Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh. Yirmeh has the idea to loosen perhaps or to lift. The Lord or Yahweh has lifted him up. He ministered for 40 years at least from the time of uh, 627 to the fall of Jerusalem in 586. So two important dates now. The fall of the northern kingdom, Israel, 722. Now about 140 years later in 586, the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah will be focused uh, ministering to the southern kingdom, uh, Judah, in and around Jerusalem. And he will be the writer, but he will employ a secretary by the name of Baruch who will help him compile all the sermons, all the thoughts that he had uh, thought and written over his 40-year-plus ministry. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, the man, uh, was a Levite. Sort of interesting for a prophet, for not a lot of prophets were Levites. Levi was, of course, the, the one tribe of Israel that was to minister in and around the temple. They didn't have their own land. They made their money from the affairs of the temple. And so he was very familiar with how the temple worked and who the high priests were and how the inner workings of the temple. He was a descendant of Abathar, who was the sole survivor of King Saul massacre of the priest at Nob. So they, the lineage of priest, of course, well precede Jeremiah and his, one of his descendants or one of his uh, progeny, the idea of, of this Abathar fellow was a recipient of God's grace there that maybe to preserve Jeremiah for this important time. Many believed that his father Hilkiah was the high priest under Josiah. Remember Josiah? He took over the kingship at the ripe old age of eight, and he ministered for quite a while and began a great reform, and then it began to slip away a bit. But Jeremiah was called in 627 B.C. around the time in which he was 20 years old, or as, we, as Chip read, he was just a youth. And Jeremiah will be an interesting fellow, for he will have to deal not only with priests, but with kings. It was routine for the prophet to go before the king because the prophet was God's mouthpiece in and for the king. And so the king would often want to know what was the Lord up to. And so while he prophesied from 627 to 586 BC, he went through a lot of kings. Uh, He he saw Josiah, um, not at the beginning of his reign, but more after his reign had begun. And then the people had begun to fall away from the great reform that Josiah had started. He ministered under the three-month lineage of Jehoiahaz, and then he began to minister under the kings that did not receive him well at all. Jehoiakim ministered, uh, or was the king in five, uh, 609 to 598, and was the king during the first exile of the Babylonians over Jerusalem. And then Jehoiachin will be there during the second exile that occurred in 597. And finally, a puppet king set up by the Babylonians, a guy named Zedekiah, who was put there to do... Babylonians' business there in and through Jerusalem will be the final king, and many of Jeremiah's encounters will be with Zedekiah, for Zedekiah will be king when Jerusalem falls in 586 BC. He saw a a, a scene change when it came to empires that ruled over the ancient Near East. As we've been studying with Jonah, it was the Assyrians who were sort of ruling the roost. Well, eventually their day came, uh, and they ended as the Babylonians defeated them. 
and began control of the region in 609 B.C., Uh, and went on to the mid-500s. What's going to be different between the two is Babylonia has an expansionist policy. They want to go out and take other lands in order to preserve their kingdom. And importantly to people throughout the history of the ancient Near East is Israel. Because Israel as a land bridge between Africa, Europe, and Asia is a crucial sliver. All these main passageways came through Israel. This little area about the size of our state of Vermont is a key piece of the puzzle, is a key land bridge. And so when Babylonia expanded their borders, it was intended to make sure that their roots were kept intact. And as a result of wanting to expand their borders, they came in in military onslaught. And three different times, Jeremiah saw the standards of Nebuchadnezzar's army coming in and around Jerusalem. The first time it came, it resulted in the first exile in 605 B.C. The guy we know as Daniel, as a young teenager, was taken back to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to begin his prophecy there. The second exile captured a young fellow by the name of Ezekiel. He went back and prophesied. The bulk of his book came from Iraq or Babylon. And then finally, Jeremiah would witness the fall of Jerusalem as seen in the third exile that lasted almost two, or the third deportation, the third siege that lasted almost two years that resulted in the fall of Jerusalem and the finality of that city as Jeremiah would have ministered all during that time, all during those kings, all during those exiles. He probably experienced more opposition, and this is going to be key to understanding Jeremiah. How did he stand up during 40 years of opposition? And there's going to be a reason that we're going to get to that he in particular had tough time. But above all the prophets, he experienced opposition like none other, in my opinion. One of the reasons is uh, uh, that Jeremiah is so endeared to us is that he's one of the few prophets that writes down what he was thinking. He, he's one of those prophets that you can really connect with. And I love this about the Bible, and I love this about God, that he allows us to vent our complaints. Uh, Jeremiah will often write as if David writes in the Psalms, in the Lament Psalms, where he's crying out to the Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? How come the righteous aren't ruling? Why do the heathen rage? Uh, And God allows that complaint uh, to be vented, and Jeremiah used some pen and ink to do that, as he was under tremendous pressure. He was often known, of course, as a weeping prophet, but primarily because he ministered to a wayward people, a people that never once bent the knee to his message. Imagine having a job description that required you to speak a certain message and no one listened. No one did what you said. What that would be like as the man to go through uh, that type of despair, that type of discouragement. And he, in fact, was a man who was discouraged, who, go, who went through great despair, but he didn't leave it there. I want to probe a bit today what, what made him tick. Why was he loyal? Even to the end, we see Jeremiah will witness the siege of his city and the fall of it in, the, in 586 B.C. And, and report of it in the book of Lamentations. Why did he remain so loyal and why is he an unlikely hero and worthy of our study as to the man, Jeremiah? What did he endure and how did he endure it? That's sort of how I want to focus this morning. Uh, the book is tough, I'll be honest with you. It's not the normal book that you would do a devotional out of. It's 52 chapters. That scares most folks away. But it's not arranged chronologically. And we sort of, you know, crave for, well, chapter two should follow chapter one. Like it's 
chronological history. He, he doesn't do that. He arranges his book somewhat chronologically, but primarily thematically. He wants to make some points, and he does that. And he might take a sermon that he gave toward the end of his ministry and, and stick it early in the book because it helps support his point. Uh, but his points throughout the book are that of a classic prophet, except for the last one. He's going to tell everybody to repent, uh, to align themselves with what God has, uh, submit to God in whatever God is going to say. And then he is going to also write a treatise that proves that God was faithful. Remember Deuteronomy 28? God was not only faithful to bless obedience, but under that covenant, he is also faithful to bring about discipline when disobedience ensued. And so Jeremiah is going to write a legal proof that Judah deserved to go into exile. He's, of course, going to write after all the events of of Judah's exile. And for those that are in exile and some back in the land, it is a book meant to help them understand that actually God dealt as an ever faithful covenanteer with you. Remember when he blessed you when you obeyed and now he disciplined when you when you didn't obey. And as a result, we're going to see the book unfold. In the first 10 chapters, there's still time to repent. Josiah's great reform has taken hold and the people have embraced the things of the Lord. They're literally finding the Bible in the temple. Imagine a nation to have gotten so far away that centuries from now, somebody might come here and through an archaeological dig might discover that Bible underneath that chair and go, what is this? And start reading it. There'd been no lineage of of the things of God being passed down. and, And Josiah championed that reform and people embraced the things of the Lord. But then as we're prone to do, they slipped away. And Jeremiah begins to write at that time saying, don't slip away. Remember the deal. Obedience brings forth blessing. Return to the Lord. Return to the character of God and he will bring you blessing. Or you will be disciplined. And so he's writing to them and and speaking and preaching to them about the ideas of repentance and then avoid exile. But what happens in the next several chapters, particularly in verses or chapters 11 through 29, makes Jeremiah's prophetic ministry the most unusual, in my opinion, of them all. For Jeremiah is going to be the bearer of bad news. Jeremiah is going to get a word from the Lord in which God is going to tell Jeremiah and thus the nation through this prophet that you can no longer repent. The discipline will now come upon you. You have gone so far in your lack of repentance. You have gone so far in your disobedience. It is now time for discipline to come upon your house and you cannot escape it. And so Jeremiah is told to tell the people that it is God's will that you now go into exile by the hand of a pagan king who is going to come over from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, eventually. He will be the instrument, the agent of God's discipline upon Jerusalem. Well, you can imagine that's not going to be received all that well. There's not a king around who's also in charge of the army that's going to go for that. You want me to surrender? Yeah, open your doors. Just let them come in. Let them take us captive. It'll go better for us that way. Tell the people, receive this foreign king. Let him come in, do what he wishes, for he is God's instrument of our discipline. Well, first of all, people are going to sort of get their back up a bit that, well, we don't need to be disciplined. And secondly, I don't like the way you're choosing to discipline us by the hands of a foreign king, a pagan who doesn't know the Lord at all. And God's going to say, yeah, 
That's the reason Jeremiah is such an unusual character. Notice what he says in chapter 25. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north. You invade Israel from the north, declares the Lord. And I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Notice in the hand of the sovereign God, this foreign king is his servant. And he will come against this land and against the inhabitants and against all those nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them through him. The whole land will become a desolation and a horror. And you will serve the king of Babylon Seventy years. But wherever there's discipline, there's also hope. Notice what he says in chapter 29. Thus says Yahweh, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. I realize I just ruined that verse for many of you. You probably put that on your graduation Form or all the things that we, we use, verse 11, and, and it captures the heart of God, but it is proper to also understand its original context. It was originally stated as a promise to Judah, those that were about to go into Babylonian exile, that not only do you deserve to go, but God is also ever faithful to restore you back after your punishment is complete. And I have good plans for you to restore you back to this place. And so Jeremiah lives under that tension. It is no longer possible to uh, repent and avoid exile. You are going into exile. That is God's will for you. But also as the book unfolds, we see what he just did in chapter 29. He gives the hard news in chapter 25. He gives the restoration news in 29. Right after this 11 through 29 section in chapters 30 through 34, he tells the people you'll be restored and a new covenant will be initiated. In fact, that is the new covenant that we enjoy, the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us, God's right, God writing his law upon our hearts. It wasn't inaugurated for centuries later, but it was first given through Ezekiel and now through Jeremiah, prophets under this terrible time in Israel's history that although our discipline is severe and although our discipline is deserved, restoration also awaits. Notice how God does things. And at times where we, we get off with him, we, we, we focus more on one on the other. We only talk about the restoration side and it's all going to be great. Or some are prone to only talk about the discipline and, and, and he comes across as mean and harsh. But he handles both of those very easily. He can mete out discipline that is deserved and also promise restoration and hope and a future. Well, what you might expect, they would go, yes, we believe you now, Lord. Jeremiah arranges his book to show that, in fact, the people didn't. They didn't repent even to that message. And they, in fact, evermore proving that they were deserving of their discipline. They evidenced no repentance, no submission. And finally, the book moves toward the final siege of Jerusalem, the utter picture of of desolation as uh, the, the capital, the place where the Lord lived, the temple, all the places where you came three times a year to worship God would all be destroyed. And then God will give oracles to Jerusalem and Judah and all the other nations that surround them, describing what their future will be like and how they too will have to be punished because of their lack of trusting in the Lord. Jeremiah's character, of course, is is formed by the fact that this message has brought about this stunning change in his life. He's he's not going to be a prophet like the other ones. He's not going to just be able to say, you need to stop doing bad and turn to God. He's going to be the bearer now of the news that says, I'm sorry, 
It's too late. You will go into exile. You will have severe discipline come your way, but you will be restored. Syria, of course, had defeated Babylon. Babylon is expanding its borders. Judah now in danger. And so between 605 and 586, Jeremiah had to preach of Babylonia as God's instrument was coming now. And the the message was simple. Submit. Submit to him. This is God's will. And what we're seeing is that they never submitted to God's will before. Maybe this time they will. And Jeremiah lives under that tension of very little fruit to his message. For throughout this time, Jeremiah will be seen as a traitor. He is championing the cause of a foreign king. He's saying that he's right to come in here and defeat us. In fact, God wants him to. And no one could wrap their mind around that. They couldn't receive that as from the Lord. So not only in their rejection of Jeremiah and his message, beyond that, they were rejecting the Lord and his message. They couldn't imagine that God would would treat them this way. And Jeremiah is making his case that, yes, we deserve to be treated this way. But God will restore us once our penalty, once our discipline has been ensued and completed. He lived in a time in which his land was deteriorated. Imagine over a 40-year period of foreign nations coming in here and, and, and coming in and taking some of our people away and then coming back 10 years later, ruining and wrecking havoc and then finally destroying us. He lived under that, that pressure militarily. He saw the moral and spiritual and political fiber of his nation come undone. And all that time he's asked to go out and give this message that no one wants to receive, but was the key to their well-being. And so the heartache, the despair that he felt, he suffered. He suffered depression. He suffered uh, despair. And he evidenced that despair and that depression. In chapter 4, he'll state, my soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Because you have heard, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed. For the whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated. My curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard of war and the sound of the trumpet? And notice his heart. For my people are foolish. They're stupid. They do evil. They're not listening to me. I have the message from on high that will make it go easier for them, yet they will not submit. They will not turn. So he appeals to God in chapter 12. He's going to take his case to God. And he says, God, you're you're righteous. You'll hear me, right? Like a lawyer, he prepares his case. And he says, righteous, O you, uh, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. As if he's not getting justice, now he's going to the Lord to find it. And he will say, why has the way of the wicked prospered and why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Just like David in the Psalms, right? The lament that comes from him. God allows that complaint to come forth, but it's often cleansed by an encounter with his character. And at this time, we're going to see that in God's character, he's going to say, it's going to get worse. You know, we might want God to say, oh, it's okay, buddy. Just hang in there just a little longer. But God tells us the truth that in this case, in Jeremiah's case, his ministry wasn't complete yet. It wasn't nearly complete by the time we're in chapter 12. He says, not only is it going to come from without, it's going to come from within also, within your own family. For even your brothers, the household 
of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you and have cried aloud after you. Don't believe them, although they may say nice things to you. Chapter 14, his despair continues. Oh, hope of Israel, let's Savior in times of distress. Notice what he's likening God to. You're like a stranger in the land or a traveler who pitched his tent for the night. You were here last night and now you're gone. There's no stability. There's no permanence to the Lord through Jeremiah's mind at this time. You're, you're like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save. And yet we do that. We'll, we'll state our complaint and in the next verse he'll say, yet you're here with us. You're in our midst. I'm, I'm not figuring out, Lord, why it seems that you're afar from us, yet I know that you're here. We call you by your name. Do not forsake us. That balance is presented throughout the scripture and certainly in Jeremiah's life as well. Woe to me, he says, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife, a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. He, he's, he, didn't, he wasn't unscrupulous in business, so everyone could say, oh, don't deal with that guy. He, everywhere he goes, there's, a, there, there's problems. It's because of his message that he's seen as a man of strife, a man of contention. He is a bearer of hard news and received, understandably, very poorly by his people. And he is complaining, as he says, my pain is becoming perpetual. My wound seems to be incurable, refusing to be healed. And then questioning God's presence. Where are you, Lord? Were you going to be like a deceptive stream to me with water that is unreliable? That part of the world, especially herdsmen and those that traveled, needed to know in the summer months, especially, where's the water? Is there going to be a wadi that has some water in it? Is there going to be a stream that will be full? And if a guide tells you, yeah, you go down here four or five miles and you'll find a wadi and it'll have water in it and you don't find that stream with water, there's that sense that he's talking about. Man, you deceived me. Your your word is unreliable to me. He he steps it up a notch here in in, in chapter 20. In essence, is quite right on the verge of calling God a liar if he just doesn't do it flat out. Oh, Lord, you've deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Every time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Starting to see his dilemma. He's a prophet. He, the word in Hebrew, Navi, to speak for another. He, he has to speak what God has told him to speak. It's a tough message. And everywhere he goes, he's a man of contention, a man of strife. For he proclaims violence and destruction. The other land is going to come in and defeat us militarily. As a result, I am in reproach and derision everywhere I go. Jeremiah's character, of course, took on all forms of persecution. It was molded by that. He's countless rejection by the average guy on the street all the way to the kings. He's beaten. He's put in stocks. He's threatened with death while other prophets are killed by, Je- by King Jehoiakim. Can you imagine this? All the prophets come in and Je- Jehoiakim starts to kill or allow the other prophets to get killed, waiting for Jeremiah to change his message. He knew some of these guys and they're dying, but he would not change his message. It was a terrible time. Jehoiakim receives the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Jeremiah presents it. Jehoiakim reads it burns it in the temple in front of Jeremiah, 
rejecting not only the prophet, of course, but the word of God itself. Jeremiah's result was seen as a, as a traitor. He was thus imprisoned for desertion. He was thrown into a muddy cistern to die and such at the cistern, it, it just it couldn't get worse. He's thrown in there and then the mud at the bottom of the cistern, he begins to sink in it. How low has he sunk, pardon the pun, but how, how that day must have pierced his soul and how he reacted to that is really where I want to focus upon now. Under that kind of scrutiny, what did he do? Well, Jeremiah was a man absolutely convinced of his message and he would not be thwarted. He took on all kind of dramatics, quite frankly. He would not only speak in public, but he did all kind of metaphoric and symbolic things. He, he goes, for example, and he buys a, a waistband a, equivalent to a man's belt. And either in real life or a vision, it's hard to tell, takes it over to Babylon. This is before they're going to be deported to Babylon and hides it under a rock. And then goes back and gets that waistband and brings it back for everyone to see. And of course, it's ruined by the, the dirt and, and all the, the lice that have gotten in it. And he holds it up and says, this is going to be what's going to happen to us. For we deserve to go into a ruined exile. He tells his people uh, that, that they, they not to get drunk with wine, but now be, be drunk with the coming defeat that is going to come our way. And he, he gives bottles of wine and jugs of wine to everybody and says, take this upon you for you will be drunk with the coming defeat that is appropriately coming our way. He's not allowed to marry for when you marry and have kids, their sufferings greater. And he is symbolic for the nation to get ready for the exile that is coming. He's told, don't go to funerals for there's no more mourning for Judah. So set was its discipline. He says, he's told he can't go to parties. For no more festivity for Judah. Your time for discipline has come. He buys a jar and breaks it in the temple, signifying Judah's destruction like that broken pot. That's what your nation will be like. He gets two baskets. I love this one. He he fills it up, one of them up with good figs and one of them up with rotten figs. And here's his point. He says the good figs, the good figs are the people that are already in captivity Or will submit to the Babylonian captivity. That's what I want. That's God's will for you. Be a good fig. Submit to captivity. The rotten figs are those that try to escape or fight God's instrument. For fighting God's instrument is equivalent to fighting God. I think one of the the more powerful ones that he did was toward the end. Or stated toward the end. In which uh, during the final siege he, he goes out and he buys property. Imagine this, our, our city surrounded, our defeat certain, our food sources cut off, and I run down to the lawyer's office and, and purchase with the realtor some land, and we close on a deal, and he comes back with the deed. He says, I bought land in this place, for this is the place that we're coming back to. Yes, our discipline is deserved, and yes, we're going away for a while, but there's a future, there's a hope for us here And I've got a deed to a piece of property here just outside this area that is so devastated now, instigating hope of restoration and future. So, of course, it took great emotional and, and, and all sorts of mental pain on him. His soul was vexed many times, yet his faith remained steadfast. He was allowed to vent his concerns, but also notice what he says other places. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself nor is it in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me 
to nothing. Moreover, the Lord has made it known to me, and I knew it, that you showed me their deeds, all those that are coming against Jeremiah. I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Under God's power and his control, Jeremiah could not be responsible for all the things that were happening. Like a gentle lamb, the slaughter of all those that came against him. I did not know that they had devised plots against me, but Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tries the feelings in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you, I love this, I have committed my cause. You see, his complaints will be cleansed as he has a time to spend in the character of God. And as he recalls God's calling upon him, as Chip read in chapter 1, he remembers that time in which I am committed to you. I am in this good times and bad. I am with you, Lord, and I will continue delivering these, this hard message. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because you have fors- they have forsaken the fountain of living water. Even the Lord, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. This idea of praise is I acknowledge who you are, and I, I give that to you. I want others to know of you also. And when he's tempted, this is what he was thinking. To to not speak of the Lord. He says, if I say I will not remember God or speak anymore in his name, then my heart becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. I must speak of the Lord for he is committed to his cause and God is his praise. He must be this bearer of bad news for God is asking And despite the whispering on every side, terror over here and denouncing him here, all my trusted friends are watching for my fall. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion, like this awesome warrior. He realizes for whom he speaks and he finds solace in the character, the full character of God. And his complaints are cleansed as a result. Well, the final test of Jeremiah's Life and his ministry occurs in around 588 to 586 B.C. Over an 18- or 19-month period, Jerusalem is surrounded and under a Babylonian siege. He's seen two of these before. Not as severe as this one, but he's seen the Babylonians come in full military array in 605. Took Daniel then, came again in 597, took Ezekiel then. Now they're coming back, and this will be the final siege. For 18, 19 months, they will spend time preparing for the overthrow of Jerusalem. And it took so long because uh, after they cut off the the food and and had surrounded the place, they they had to build a siege ramp. All your cities in the ancient Near East, if you've been to Jerusalem today, you'll still see the outer wall. It was also a city, but it was also a fortress. And to get inside where the good stuff was, you had to figure out a way to go through or over the wall, and it was very common to choose to go over it. And so imagine this wall here from, from the floor here to the top up there to be uh, an average size wall thick with rocks. That's a tough thing to scale. Ladders aren't going to work. Uh, you can't knock it over very easily. The gates were heavily protected and very narrow, so you couldn't get a lot of military power through there. So what they would do is they would build a ramp, and so they would fill all this area in with dirt and begin to build a slow, sloping ramp that went maybe well across the street to where the college auditorium is. And you would begin to 
pull your chariots and your weapons of war over the top of the wall on this huge construction project that had gone on. That's why it took so long. If you've been to in and around Jerusalem, if you go to Masada, you'll see the, the, the last vestiges of, of the, the Roman siege ramp that they used to uh, extract those that were in Masada. It's still there. It's shrunk down a bit, but that's how they did it. That's how they got over. Well, starvation, of course, set in. Jeremiah, in the middle of the temple area, witnessing all of this. Of course, the disease that would follow. Human dung was used for fuel during the winter times for their supplies were so low. Corpses littered the city and the temple area, not only a defilement for medical reasons, but ceremonially to a Jew, it was the epitome of disaster to have death so close to the presence of the Lord. And cannibalism, as prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, finally came upon that generation, the generation that never listened to Jeremiah's message, the generation that had to be taken into captivity because of their disobedience. The city walls, of course, were then breached, torn down. Hand-to-hand combat ensued. The temple, the king's house were ransacked and burned. Houses in the city of David, the lower part of the city, were burned. King Zedekiah, the puppet king now who had been set up by Babylon, had turned against Babylon. And so the epitome of this is Jeremiah can't even convince a guy who's been sent here by Babylon. And, and he's turned against Babylon and is leading people astray, thinking it's good for us to fight this king. And that was the exact last thing that they should have done. They should have surrendered and allowed their discipline to go more easily. But the discipline was certain. He's captured and blinded. Many others were captured, enslaved, sent back. If they were of use, they would be sent back to Babylon. Jeremiah was certainly spared ultimately by God, but Nebuchadnezzar had heard of his messages and had allowed him on a human level to be spared of destruction. For Jeremiah had preached well of him and he would be, he would be allowed to come into the city. Jeremiah, also the author of Lamentations, begins his book in, in one of the most poignant little phrases in all the word of God. How lonely the city sits. For a guy who was on the inside and now some time has gone by and is on the outside and he's seeing that vista and the walls down, the smoke maybe still coming up, all that he had experienced came back to his mind. And that's what he writes in the book of Lamentations. And in the third chapter, he leaves us with, I think, his theological epitaph. What was he thinking when he witnessed firsthand the terrible destruction of Jerusalem. Unlike any other time in their history, he was a first-hand eyewitness. His friends were lost. He was there. He saw. He smelt. He did all the things that human beings would do under a terrible time. And then he writes about it. And yet this is what comes out of his heart. Theologians for years have, have said that the most important thing that we can ever think is what we think when we think about God. The most important thoughts we will ever have are those thoughts that are directed about the person of God. And so this is what Jeremiah was thinking in Lamentations 3, 19 through 24, when all this horror was ensuing. He states in these five powerful verses, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But then I recall in my mind, therefore I have hope. And this is what he recalled. 
that the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. It's a three-point little treatise that he gives forth. Notice the first two sections, uh, the first two verses capture his recollection of the hard times, of what he's experienced. And again, notice the balance. The Lord allows uh, the reporting of the soul and despair that he was feeling. He says, remember my affliction, my wandering, my wormwood, my bitterness. He says, because my soul remembers and has bowed down within me. He's been humbled by the experience. He's been laid low. Then whatever he thought next, I think, was the key to his life. It captures a 40-year ministry in two or three verses. For whatever you think about, when you think about God, that's the most important thing you'll ever ponder. And what he considered at that point was that I recalled in my mind some things about the Lord and hope began to come back. And he thought about three things. There are many things about the Lord, but he thought of three. And I think that's worth our time. He thought about the Lord's loving kindness and says they never cease. Loving kindness in Hebrew is the the word chesed, is the idea of being loyal to a covenant. See, as a prophet, he knew the covenant. He knew the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant. And he knew God as an ever faithful covenanteer. He was faithful to bless when obedience ensued. And he was faithful to discipline when it was time. He was loyal to the covenant. God is the best person with whom to be in a deal there is in the universe. He is the best covenanteer that's ever been imagined. And Jeremiah recognized that and stood firm on it. So not only is he loyal to a covenant, but he's also tender in his care. That's the idea behind this word compassion. It comes from the word for the woman's womb. The idea of, 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 that you, of, of a tender care that you would have for your own baby. And then Conceptually, that's also the place where we feel tenderness. We sort of, in our gut, we feel a tenderness towards someone else. And that double entendre is wrapped up in that word. That God is not only loyal, but he's tender in his care for us. And he's faithful. The idea behind faithful, in fact, we get our word amen from this Hebrew word aman. It's the idea of strength or stability. That God is so strong, so reliable that I can depend upon him For he changes not in his makeup and his character. And so of all the things that could have come to his mind, those three rose to the top. That God is loyal to his covenant people. He's tender in his care for them. And he's strong in his presence and steadfastness. And then he concludes like he's being served a meal. Instead of a, a a meal of meat and potatoes, he goes, the Lord is my portion. And therefore... I have hope. And you see that nice little inclusio with hope in verse 21 because he recalled in his mind things about the Lord and, in fact, the hope that was instilled. So, Lord, as we we close this morning and have opportunity now to have our our grief, our comfort, our complaints, our our questions um, confronted by your character, I thank you for the honor to do that, Lord, too. Let the reality of of the hard times be discussed and not hushed, but also that we can find solace and comfort in your character, a a character of, of great loyalty, a character of great tenderness, a character of great faithfulness and strength and stability. Lord, 
so many in the room now. We could be hurting in so many different levels, questioning in so many different ways. Help us meet you on your terms. Help our complaints be cleansed after we encounter the character of God. As Jeremiah led us, may we also follow suit and follow hard after you as a result. Thank you for each one here, Lord, and our time this morning. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you guys next week.